Hey there, and welcome to episode number 159 of Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. In this episode, that month is May 1971. My name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Milne. Mine is Jamie Winger. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to bring our guest in uh, right away. Uh, they're joining us all the way from Brooklyn, New York City. Hey. They are the host of the Graphic Policy and Deep Space Dive podcasts, film and comics critic, and digital organizer, Ilana Levin. Yay! Hello. Yay! Hi. I'm so glad to be back on the show, you guys. I have so much fun with this show every time, so... <laughs> Oh, we're so happy to have you. And uh, I'm sorry that I made you sound like some sort of like Texas Instruments Rolodex from 1988. Like when I say that you're a digital organizer. I, oh, I mean, no, I know. Like, <laughs> you, it's in my bio. Like that's, that's, that is language that we do use to talk about the work we do. I'm like, no, that's that's correct. There we don't go. have better words for this still. Despite <laughs> this has been a thing since about 2004. Yeah. But, so, you, know, I mean, uh, you, you help like basically develop like digital labor organizing strategies. Is that pretty much? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And not just, not just for unions, but certainly also for unions. Mm -hmm. um, and my own background is working in the labor movement. Um, but yeah, a lot of online mobilization and campaigning for issue causes um, and um, for, for union organizing work and stuff nice. like that. Yeah. How's, how's the work going lately? I assume there's no lack of it. <laughs> no, no lack of it. I will have to say, um, you know, right now is an extremely, difficult time at large in the world with everything from, I don't know exactly what day this is releasing, but like everything from the absolute disgusting tragedies that have recently happened, the ongoing threat against transgender people all over the country. It's not just happening in the South, it's happening everywhere. Um, and uh, including in Pride Month, you'll continue to see terrible, horrific legislation being passed to isolate and traumatize and threaten the lives of trans people and trans kids. Um, but one one good thing that we've seen is the continuing Starbucks organizing campaign, which is just like blowing up everywhere is nothing like I've seen in my lifetime is happening at my former union. So even though it's <laughs> years after I left there, but um, I it and, and seeing organizing happening in the comics industry as well now, like those are really two of the the the, the shining stars that I hold on to when I'm feeling completely despondent. Um, so. <laughs> You know, when you next time you pick up something at Starbucks, give your name as being Go Union and um, <laughs> support support any union organizing you can see in your community. If you see a picket line in your neighborhood outside of a construction site, I live in New York, so to me this is a normal thing that one might encounter. <laughs> you know, give them a thumbs up, honk. You know, uh, call on um, companies whenever they ask you to call them and yell at them for being bad, being bad employers and. <laughs> And listen to what the employees of the company are asking you to do. Like I know right now, Seven Seas, which is a manga distributor and translator in the U.S., but there's a big organizing campaign happening there, and people will proudly be like, "Oh, I'm going to boycott." And it's like, no, nobody's actually asked you to boycott, so don't do that now. They may ask you to do that later. If they ask you to do that later, for the love of God, respect their boycott. But don't just assume that because there's a labor action that the thing we're asking you to do is necessarily boycott. There's strategic mm. reasons around the timing of these things. So always follow the lead of the workers who are doing the organizing and artists are workers too. Gotcha. I guess that's my my uh, soapbox since you basically asked me for it. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think he set yeah. the soapbox up for yeah, you to step that was, onto. That yeah. was just a, a fat pitch right over the middle of the plate. Um, okay. so, Everybody but, yeah, who's like hates politics, they're like, 
Bye. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think we drove them off about 150 episodes ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're in good company. Yeah. So when I was booking guests for the season, uh, I had you penciled in as a potential guest for this episode before we had even recorded the first episode of the season. Uh, I, I feel like we're gonna hit so many of your sweet spots this month. Uh, yeah. we've, we've we've got an African nation resisting European uh, imperialism. Uh, we've got a rip from the headline story about prison reform. Uh, and we've got Roy Thomas's latest feminist panic fever dream. <laughs> so insane. Yeah. Yeah. You and, rang? And, Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know this going in, uh, but you mentioned uh, when we were emailing a, a few <laughs> days ago that uh, you were a pretty big Tom Wolf fan uh, in your formative years. Yes, I was. I um. You know, you're like hanging out in your parents' attic that has the biggest book collection in it. And the spine of the, one of the books is like in rainbow colors and black and white. And it's super trippy. And it says the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And you're in junior high and you're like, clearly, mm-hmm. I'm going to read this right now. <laughs> and I did. And it changed my life, you know. Um, and uh, I became completely obsessed with 60s pop culture and history. And I mean, I kind of was already like I grew up on the Beatles very much like a lot of folks on this show. Um, but uh I got super into that book. One of the problems about reading that, um, Tom Wolfe is the new, uh, really kind of the father of new journalism, which was a, a journalism style that continues to be extremely dominant in the way the media works today, where our, where the writers were like acknowledging that they were taking place in the story, taking part of the story and trying to sort of speak in the vernacular of the people who they were covering. Um, the problem with reading that when you're 13 is that you don't realize that the hippies in his book are assholes. You think that they're mm. cool. It's <laughs> not like, I'm not saying all hippies were assholes, but as an adult, when I revisited the book later, I was like, oh my God, these are all terrible people. Wow. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then you're also kind of like, actually Tom Wolf is a terrible person too, huh? That's pretty racist. <laughs> but I will always have this like space in my heart for the way he introduced me to looking at some of these historical time periods to introduce me to different he in, in, art history and counterculture and all kinds of stuff very much through his extremely bougie wasp rich dude lens uh, uh-huh. who was judging people terribly um and it's fascinating to me that he's the guy who's getting name drops all over marvel comics right in this period <laughs> it's um, so strange and wait you, and you're telling me that a guy who just like paraded around in an all-white suit constantly was was somehow booze bougie and uh rich boy like entitlement I, yeah i'm i would rather him do that than pretend he's not right true yeah. Yep. Um, so at least like you can see where these biases are coming in when you're reading it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, um, but it was, but yeah, this is the, this is the infamous issue of Hulk in which they straight up are like, this comic is about radical chic. Yeah. The article mm-hmm. that Tom Wolf ran, had in uh, New York Magazine, which you can actually go. This is what made me look it up. I'd read it in an essay book online. There are, there are, um, uh, photos of the article as it ran in the magazine with the photos that accompanied it. So, oh, and for wow. free. Cool. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I find that the, whenever we do touch upon scans and sort of just in comics too, but leaving the Marvel unlimited scene, the context yeah. and the ads and the, anything else that's running in the book is just always so interesting and actually sets the tone maybe even better than our historical essays at the start of these episodes you know they you yeah. can just get the picture real fast well yeah. i mean i wouldn't yeah. say better necessarily i mean this is the best way i didn't mean to undersell the podcast again i'm terrible 
Well, I mean, speaking of uh, of those historical context essays, should we uh, maybe uh, jump into that uh, before we jump into the the comics of May 1971? Let's talk yeah. a little bit about what was going on in the world of uh, May 1971. Uh, Rob, why don't you uh, kick us off? Sure, since I segued so <laughs> accidentally. Um, <laughs> comedian Don Rickles makes a guest appearance in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 139, written and drawn by Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. Um Al Cap, the creator of the syndicated newspaper comic strip Lil Abner, is charged with sexual harassment, sodomy, attempted adultery, and indecent exposure. Cap eventually manages to plea bargain down to a fine for attempted adultery, but his public image and the popularity of Lil Abner are damaged beyond repair. I like how the thing he's found guilty for is the thing that one of the several things that shouldn't be legal, like the assault thing, sexual assault, like don't do that. But adultery, like that's your private business and sodomy, like, hey, guys, let's do it. Like, yeah, what a ridiculous way for that course case. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual harassment was the only thing, I I guess, indecent exposure, possibly. Yeah. That's like a part of sexual harassment. Yeah. Like, it's depending on the circumstances. Yeah. I've Uh, never heard of a attempted adultery. Is that like. Also, you tried to cheat, but you were bad at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like no, you're already pretty punished in that case, I would imagine. Oh God. <laughs> oh boy. Um. <laughs> so, as mentioned last episode, right on the heels of Amazing Spider-Man's three-part story about drug abuse, uh, DC Comics publishes Snowbirds Don't Fly and Green Lantern, Green Arrow number eighty-five, the first of a two-part story about Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy becoming a heroin addict. It's it's all about the uh, the meaningful, socially relevant comics uh, in the mainstream right now. We just spoke so. about that issue of the comic on Graphic Policy Radio with you yes. for the uh, Neil Adams panel. So yes, we did. This is not a DC podcast here, so I'll let folks no, go no, and no. check. <laughs> Uh, but that we, on graphic policy radio, but yeah, I had so much fun, uh, talking <laughs> with you all about Neil Adams. Um, it was just, what a joy to just talk about comics that I liked for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. So, uh, thank you, Rob. That was a little bit of what was happening in, in the comics of May, 1971. Um, uh, here's, here's what was going on in the rest of the world. On, on the 3rd of May, uh, the Harris Poll announced that a recent survey had found that 60% of Americans opposed the Vietnam War based on the question of whether the U.S. should withdraw its troops, even if it means that South Vietnam would fall to the communists. For the first time since the question was asked, a majority of Americans agreed that it was morally wrong for the U.S. to be fighting in Vietnam. That same day, anti-war activists attempted to disrupt government business in Washington, D.C. in what would become known as the 1971 May Day protests. Uh, Police and military units arrested as many as 12,000 protesters, most of whom were later later released. And D.C., uh, some of them uh, were uh, 1,200 anti-war activists who uh, D.C. police arrested after they had entered the U.S. Capitol to listen to a speech by Congressman Ronald Dellums. And, uh, and they stuck them inside a makeshift jail that had been set up at RFK Stadium. Uh, in 1975, a U.S. District Court jury would award $12 million in damages to the group for false imprisonment after an illegal arrest. Whoa. So, yeah. On that same day, all things considered, National Public Radio's flagship news program was broadcast for the very first time starting at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on 90 NPR stations. Robert Conley served as the first host of the 90-minute program. Wow, I had no idea that that had been around for so long. Yeah. 
uh, on the 6th of May, the state of North Carolina ratified the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, granting women the right to vote more than 50 years after it had taken effect in 1920. At the time, the only state not to have ratified the 19th Amendment was Mississippi, which would finally approve it in 1984. <laughs> Way to stand your ground. Like, yep. <laughs> like, just making a weird stand. Take a yeah. terrible stand and hold on to it until 1984. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not the last terrible stand. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well, only got two, but yeah. Sadly, no. Yeah. Um, on the 7th of May, owners of the teams in the National Basketball Association and the rival American Basketball Association reached an agreement in New York City to merge the two leagues into a 28-team circuit of 17 NBA teams and 11 ABA teams. Players in both leagues stated at the time that they opposed the merger because they thought it would remove competitive bidding for their services. Uh, although a championship game between the two leagues was not discussed, the parties agreed to play interleague preseason games during the fall. Hmm. So is that like uh, at the end of the Muir Island saga when the X-Men broke into like, you know, they just had basically. too many of them and had to. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Now yep. I understand. I yeah. Just the, the... the NBA is basically like Krakoa. Finally. OK. Yeah. <laughs> OK. It's like now everyone it just comes sense. together. Yeah. Right. Thanks right. for translating, Jamie. I would all not right. have understood that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on May 11th, D Dallas restaurant operator Mariano Martinez invited the process, invented the process that would make the frozen margarita America's most popular cocktail. <laughs> Adapting a soft serve ice cream machine to hold gallons of pre-made frozen margarita mix, Martinez was able to serve margaritas that evening as soon as they were ordered, eliminating the process where each individual drink had to be made in a blender. Science. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the oh, world was never the same. Genius <laughs> yeah. comes in many forms. Uh, on the 17th of May, virtually all railroads in the United States shut down starting at 6.01 a.m. Eastern time as the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen walked out on strike, preventing the safe operation of trains and other railway workers refused to cross the Brotherhood's picket lines. So in an emergency session, Congress passed a bill to provide a pay raise of 13.5% to the rail workers to last until October 1st as part of a cooling off period. And President Nixon signed the bill into law at 11.30 the next evening. The railroads reopened the next day. Hey, how about that? Uh, on the 27th of May, uh, Paul Bettany, the English actor best known for portraying the Vision in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was born in Shepherd's Bush, London. On the same day, Australian actor Chips Rafferty died of a heart attack at the age of 62, one day after being offered a role in The Day the Clown Cried. Uh, anyone know what The Day the Clown Cried is about? It never got made. It was a Jerry Lewis joint uh, that I don't believe ever got filmed. I think there may have been some... Did it get filmed? It certainly never got released. But wow. um, the story, it was the story of a clown who performed for children in Auschwitz uh, to like lead them and not freak them out as they were being led away to die. Oh, Ooh, whoa. Yep. It, not, it, wow. Is that based on a true story? Because I feel like I would I know it if is. it had been. And I... Uh, I don't know if it honestly. I don't know if it is or not. But I mean, the I, the the story I don't about think it, Jerry Lewis. I don't Lewis, think it is. Well, mm. yeah, this, the story about Jerry Lewis wanting to make this movie, and I know at least test footage was shot. Wow. Uh, that is definitely true. But oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. We'll look that up. Yeah, on the on on the one note on your first part of this with Paul uh -huh. Bettany, 
this is one of the first times I think you've named an actor uh, and then said that they're most famous for uh, portraying <laughs> a character in some somehow to do oh, with Marvel, right. and it works yeah. out. Yeah, usually yeah, right, it's right. N- it's just burying whatever you know awards the you know Oscars, <laughs> right. Emmys, whatever. Yeah. Are, are you saying that Matt Damon is not best known for playing Redneck Two in Deadpool Two? <laughs> well, I think so, but you know, yeah. he's that's where he won my heart. I don't watch a lot of movies. <laughs> Uh, on May 30th, about 1,000 people who attended a concert of the Grateful Dead at the Winterland Auditorium in San Francisco sought medical attention after having ingested LSD from apple cider that had been passed around in the crowd. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Having to see the Grateful Dead live. So that's a glimpse of what was going on in the world in May of 1971. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about what was happening in the Marvel Comics of May 1971 right here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Okay, it is time for a sponsor break. As regular listeners know, each episode of Marvel by the Month this season is, for some reason, brought to you by one of the advertisers from the issues that we are covering. Rob, this is the question I dread asking every single week. Who's our sponsor this time? It's another Joe Weeder breakthrough. The end of Skinny Body. Look, nobody likes a bag of bones. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. But you can gain up to 16 pounds in 14 days with the do-it-yourself gained-a-pound-a-day kit. Uh, I am just deeply uncomfortable with running an ad like this on our show. Uh, what, what else do you have? Let's see. Here's one. Crash diet, only $1. Lose up to five pounds overnight. Oh, is this like an amputation thing? Eat plenty, <laughs> go to sleep, wake up, and you have lost pounds and pounds. Rob, come on, man. Fine. How about don't be fat? Nope. We are done for this week. Uh, I guess this episode of Marvel by the Month was brought to you by 1971's body shaming industry. (laughs) Still going strong after 50 years. Uh, We are also supported each and every week by our subscribers at patreon.com slash Marvel by the Month. They are the ones who actually help us make this show week after week, and they get access to a whole lot of show that never appears in our public feed. Imagine that our public feed episodes are like a person who wakes up after losing five pounds overnight with a crash <laughs> diet. No. Okay. Well, imagine that our public feed episodes are just half or three quarters of what we actually wound up recording, because that's pretty much what they are. Our Patreon subscribers get access to our extended episodes where we take deeper dives into more comics and have longer conversations with some of our favorite guests. There are also entire episodes that are only available to our Patreon subscribers. We're up to more than 40 extended and exclusive episodes in the bonus feed, and every week we just add another one. If you like what we do and you'd like us to keep doing it, uh, the best way to make sure that happens is to help us cover the costs of making it. I would thank our listeners who already support us, but they're not hearing this right now Ooh. because our extended episodes don't have these promos in them. I mean, that is worth four bucks a month right there. Uh, so head to patreon.com slash Marvel by the month to get instant access to all of our past, present and future subscriber exclusive content.
Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Let's talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 99, A Day in the Life of. This is written by Stan Lee, art by Gil Kane, and Frank Giacoya. Uh, this, uh, we get to start this issue with the rarest of things, the happy Peter Parker. Uh, and uh, he and Gwen are walking through the Gil Kane-littered streets of New York, enjoying each other's company. Um, and on, I, on the splash page, there's just a man playing a guitar for some reason. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering about that. I thought Rick Jones was going to show up and I got really scared for real <laughs> when I first saw that. I'm like, oh, I got to do another Rick Jones song. Um, but yeah, luckily, no. So that, the hair ooh. reminded me of Arcade, too. It looks like Arcade's like classic hair swoop. <laughs> uh, so this. Yeah. And it promises this one. You don't dare miss. Also featuring Spidey on TV on our splash page. Um in addition to panic in the prison. Um, but we do, I, I say the Gil Kane littered streets because it, Gil Kane draws a street and there is stuff all over it. Mm-hmm. All, every single street. This is like the birds he draws sometimes that are both above and below Spider-Man in different <laughs> ways. Uh, anyway, it, it was distracting, but not as distracting as Gil Kane animals. Um, yeah, right, right. Yeah. And the trash cans like overflowing somewhere in there. I, yeah, I noticed yeah. that too. There's like uh, posters. But this is like, this is so we get a whole page of just happy Peter and Gwen just in love together, walking around, talking about things. Peter even seems to infer that he might be popping the question soon. Yeah, uh, he walks right up to that line. Yeah. And then just they do a smooch instead of, you know, crossing the line. And then we have a discreet panel to let them that go on. Then do you, do you feel that that was kind of Stan's way of floating the trial balloon to see what he would get for reader response? It's like, do you want Spider-Man to be married? Do you not no. want Spider-Man be, to be married? Oh, do you smart. want Spider-Man to be married for like 20 years and then we'll have the devil reverse it? Uh, <laughs> we can do that. I'm sure. Too. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you guys want. Just keep buying these books, please. Yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after, right after Pete and Gwen split, uh, Peter declares aloud that he needs to get a job before he can pop the question. Uh, and I say aloud cause he's just walking around talking <laughs> to himself, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but he can't go back to Osborne and risk triggering a goblin transformation, which he's still saying out loud. Uh, and then he heads <laughs> to the daily bugle um, because that's his next best, you know, employment opportunity. Uh, as he is entering, we learn that he's modified his Spidey cam into a very sub mini that should allow for fewer scenes of him webbing a camera in a corner. Um, that's just me adding my note. Also <laughs> making it easier the next time that the writer and artist forget to show how Pete came up with those Spidey fight shots and they forgot to show him webbing it in a corner. Hmm. Um, at the bugle, Robbie immediately says there is a job waiting. Uh, turns out it is a freelance gig at a prison. There's a riot and they don't have any photographers to cover it. As Jonah orders Parker to get going, Pete says, first, let's talk money. Uh, Peter negotiates a higher price for shots he's take, he takes and a salaried spare time staff photographer role. I don't even know how you do that with the paperwork, yeah. but um, the new price is $100 for any shot used. Yeah, <laughs> that's used. This starts to feel like they're making Marvel comics here. Like, you gotta, yeah, there was a You're, bit in here I thought was really cool that um, Robbie's like, uh, "Come on, Jonah, like this kid's good. He's he's a yeah. like, 
and and Jonah admits that he's good and he just doesn't want to tell him that. Yeah. yeah. But it I, seemed I, like Peter was already in the room at the time. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But it's a staging thing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, Robbie is clearly on Peter's side throughout this entire thing. Like he is he's so excited to be picking Jonah's pocket. Yeah, yeah. he loves you could just see him in the background enjoying Peter asking for these things and yeah. abdicating and making Jonah squirm. Mm-hmm. Um but one of the reasons uh one of the reasons that uh Pete uses for upping the price of his photos is the danger he'll be in when Spider-Man shows up, which he so often does when Mm. Peter's out taking pictures. It's a weird coincidence. (laughs) So Spidey heads to the jail and sneaks past all the other photographers to get inside the jail. Uh, On his way in, he catches some prisoners guarding the roof. As Spidey webs one up, he asks why they're rioting. The prisoner offers a pretty reasonable response of to be treated like human beings and not like caged animals, to not have to wait months to get a trial, to just have the rights that they allegedly already have. Uh, The prisoner also mentions the leader of the riot, a guy named Turpo. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They just couldn't hold back on the name. They were like, no, this is what we're going with. Uh, Spidey sneaks around and finds out that Turpo is with the warden already. He overhears the warden tell Turpo that he's selling those cons down the river. Turpo replies, skip the sob story, man. If you want to stay healthy, they do the riding and Turpo's going to escape. What's wrong with that? When another inmate asks Turpo about their list of grievances, he tells them to take him to the chaplain, sucker. Uh, after Turbo, after Turpo makes it clear to everyone that he's only in it for himself, Spidey breaks into the office and takes out all of the inmates that are helping Turpo out. The warden warns Spidey that there are two more inmates outside of the door as Spidey is taking care of them. He lets the other inmates know the real story about Turpo. And then is is that the last time you're going to say Turpo? No, I'm going to say Turpo every time I can. Uh, (laughs) An inmate from the office jumps out and confirms it because they're not going to just believe Spider-Man. That inmate also confirms that the warden agrees with most of their grievances. And the warden even says, if you drop your weapons, Return to your cells. I'll request amnesty for every last one of you. And the inmates accept. Uh, Spider Spidey remembers that his new belt cam caught the pics he needs, and he's excited to go get paid. Uh, after he's leaving, he sees the warden giving a press conference outside of the prison. The warden says that the riot is over, but they need reforms uh, to keep the prisons from exploding again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and like before, a very well reason, like uncharacteristically well reasoned warden. Like yes. in all yeah. of fiction, like well, I, he just, one of the one of the prisoners goes so far as to say the warden's always been a right Joe. What do we got to lose? And you know, prisoners famously <laughs> yeah, have a lot warden. of respect yeah. for yeah. wardens. Yeah, right. So yeah. So before the next inexplicable part of the story, let's review some <laughs> topical history of the day. This is pretty much straight out of Wikipedia. So. <laughs> The Tombs is the colloquial name for the Manhattan Detention Complex, which is a municipal jail in Lower Manhattan. Uh, By 1969, the Tombs ranked as the worst of the city's jails, both in overall conditions and in overcrowding. It held an average of 2,000 inmates in spaces designed for for 925. Inmates rioted on August 10th, 1970, after multiple warnings about falling budgets, aging facilities, and rising populations, and after an informational picket of City Hall by Union correctional officers drawing attention to the pressures. So uh, 
Riders took command of the entire ninth floor and five officers were held hostage for eight hours until state officials agreed to hear prisoners' grievances and take no punitive action against the rioters. Despite that promise, Mayor John Lindsay had the primary troublemakers shipped upstate to the state's Attica Correctional Facility, which likely contributed to the Attica prison riot about a year later. Mm -hmm. Within a month after the riot, the New York City Legal Aid Society filed a landmark class action suit on behalf of pre-trial detainees held in the tombs. The city decided to close the tombs on December 20th, 1974, after years of litigation and after federal judge Morris E. Lasker agreed that the prison's conditions were so bad as to be unconstitutional. Whoa. They shipped the remaining 400 inmates to Rikers Island, where conditions were not much better. And continue and, to be just as bad today. And yes. there's an ongoing campaign to close Rikers. Um, yes, right now. Yeah. They Go, keep just not doing it. And saying we'll just build some additional city jails, which is not actually something people want either. And everybody has fucking COVID right now. Right. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll get through the the latter half of the story here. Um, swinging his way to the bugle to develop picks and get paid, Spidey is interrupted by the fresh-faced but unnamed Johnny Carson hanging out a window and yelling at Spidey to see if he'll be a guest on his unnamed nighttime show. Yeah, and it's clearly Johnny Carson. Yeah, like there's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's no, it's not even subtle. Yeah. And uh, The Tonight Show, uh, you know, if you grew up, uh, when I did, The Tonight Show was very much a ca- California-based thing, but it was shot in New York mm-hmm. from 1962 to 1972. Uh, Johnny wants Spidey on the show to talk about the prison riots and maybe just for Spidey's own public relations. Um, Spidey, thinking of making money, says, no dough, no show. <laughs> and Johnny agrees to pay the usual rate, and that's enough. Uh, so Spidey agrees to be back before midnight and heads out to the bugle. His mind is still very much on the money and vice versa. Uh, but <laughs> Pete didn't count on the whole salary thing. Uh, Robbie lets him know that he can pick up his check on payday, which is Friday and oh. not that day. So Pete wanted to take Gwen out to dinner that night, and now he won't have the dough. So he's really counting on The Tonight Show. Uh, <laughs> as he arrives, he makes a little plan with Johnny. Johnny heads out and interrupts, obviously, Ed McMahon to announce that they have a surprise for you that's just too big to keep. And Spidey swings in over the audience to the stage. Uh, but first, Spidey needs to prove he's the real Spider-Man, so he sticks to a wall. And then he descends on a web. And then he hoists Johnny into the air on a web. Uh, And then uh, Spidey gives this speech. Now that I've a captive audience, I want to talk about some other captives. I mean, the prisoners who are locked up in our understaffed, overage, overcrowded jails. I'm talking about conditions where young first offenders are put in the same cells with hardened criminals. Then I'm going to bridge a little bit, jump forward. Uh, He continues... I'm talking about men who stay locked up for months waiting for trial because there aren't enough judges, not enough courts. Crime and justice are everyone's problem, and it's a problem that must be solved before it's too late. So this is Stan subtly putting in the messages in the comics again. Uh, (laughs) So subtle. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Ironically, Spidey's appearance is ended by police showing up to arrest him since there's a warrant out for him. And Spidey (laughs) leaves before he can get paid. So... Uh. So we get the super bummed Peter back to has, normal. Has, has Spidey ever gotten paid for any of his entertainment 
appearances up until this point because I mean, didn't, the, the like, initially did didn't he get on, wrestling? He, he, yeah, well, well, wrestling right. job. Wrestling. He got paid oh. for the wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Look what happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I think, uh, I mean, he was on a variety show, and then he asked, he's like, "Just make the check out to Spider Man." Yep. And then there's that scene where he can't <laughs> catch the check. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. I think Spidey should just stay away from show business. Yeah, obviously, it is his first calling, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know if this is really where he needs to be. So so now the bummed and broke Peter shows up at Gwen's and decides to do an unusual thing. He communicates his actual situation and how he can't <laughs> afford to take her out. Whoa. <laughs> Blind pig finds acorn. <laughs> uh, 99 issues. The guy finally figures it out. Yeah. It, it, it's, I love the whole setup. Like he's like, what if I just say what's going on? Huh? Oh, bear with me. Bear with me. Yeah. Uh, but Gwen spent all afternoon making dinner for them anyway and had no intention of going somewhere. So they have dinner at her place. Peter's everything's just coming up. Peter Parker after all. And that's where we wrap up issue 99. So, so thoughts on this whole uh, <laughs> prison message, which is pretty much, this feels like Stan did the, the anti-drug run and then nobody asked him to do this one, but he did uh, mm-hmm. for this yeah. message about overcrowded jails. I mean, I, I've covered a lot of the mm. things yeah. going on, the rip from the headlines pieces, but uh, you know, it, and as we all know, this is, a thing that these are conditions that plague many prisons to this day. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they did an issue on this. Don't get me wrong. One thing that it does fall into that is a very common Stan Lee uh, political problem is this yet again, having the radicals are actually stooges of someone who's manipulating them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, like Stan Lee is so dedicated towards always being the moderate that it kind mm-hmm. of guarantees that he's always wrong. Um, it's like, it's like, no, most prison, I can't, I can't even imagine a situation in which prisoners who are standing up for their freedom or are actually being stooges of some like random white dude who's telling them what to do and is going to, uh, like, no, like all of the, all of the complaints that all the imprisoned people have are all real concerns that all need to be addressed immediately. They don't need to be manipulated by some like white dude to express these things. And also fuck the warden. The warden knows all of these things and he has absolutely no interest (laughs) in fixing any of them. That's not to say there aren't specific situations in which corrections officers are also like experiencing problems at work because of conditions, but like this is the warden. Um, and it's sort of delusional to think that the warden is the one who's going to like fix these things or that the warden even wants these things to be resolved. They're not part of the solution, guys. Right, <laughs> right. I didn't think of that. Yeah, like the, this shouldn't be news to him. He's like, oh, are things unpleasant here? Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I, I just, yeah. you know, I've it's been like in my office. In this casino. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like, you know exactly what's happening here. And this is what this is. It's doing what it's built to do. Right. Yeah. It's replacing the actual social service sector that they decide and like creating a prisoner class of people to perform free labor. And like, that's what it's built to do and it's doing it. Um, so I, I, I'm excited that the comic was like, let me tell you about specific things that are happening right now in the mm-hmm. prison system. But, but Stan's dedication to having it always be both sides is just undermining the point it's trying to make to and and in a way that it makes the story 
it gives them an ability to finish the story quickly, but it doesn't feel as satisfying, does it? Because we all know that that's bullshit, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah. Or uh, and or even worse to think that this is teaching people to believe that it might not be bullshit. Um, that mm. that this is a like this the facts ripped from the headlines are enough, and the warden is just there are great wardens out there. Great waiting, wardens waiting out to, there. Not all to help wardens. everybody. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. like if if yeah. some kid is taking that away, they're not understanding the whole. I mean, all the way into privatized prisons and uh, yeah, the even worse jam we're in. Mm. Oh boy. Yeah. So we got a message and yeah. well, it was it, subtle. Yeah. It's, it's, al- <laughs> it's, it's always so subtle. subtle with um, I do get like, you definitely get the sense that, that DC and Marvel in particular are now locked in this sort of like escalating social mm. relevancy game. Um, where it's like, well, we're going to do a, a three part mm. Spider-Man story about uh, Spider-Man's friend, uh, having a problem with pills. Well, we're going to do a two-part Green Lantern, Green Arrow story about Green Arrow's sidekick having a problem with heroin. Uh, and <laughs> so it's like, you know, and, and now it's like everything, yeah. yeah, everything feels like it needs to be about something, um, you know, which, it, which I I approve of that. You know, it's like I, I want it to feel a little bit more meaningful, uh, especially, you know, if, if if these things are not being read solely by 11-year-olds anymore. Um but there is, it is sort of like, you know, um, it's like my first book on prison reform. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I wonder that like we've had the 50 ish years of collective culture pop, very special episodes, uh, kind of thrust upon us for our whole lives. So like we are as savvy as people will ever be have ever been to this point in human history with very special episodes, you know? So like Mm. we're super literate in, in all in the lingo of this. Uh, And like maybe audiences back then were like, wait, what? Oh my God, this is mind blowing. Mom, dad, what do you think about this? Like, I, maybe the audiences are very different then. I, maybe that's charitable, but like maybe, maybe it's like the overt simplistic approach back then was like, okay. Or yeah. more useful than it would be now. Like this would bounce off anyone's face if it was printed today. Yeah, although in, like in context, <laughs> not like, anyone. When I do you, do you know <laughs> the world we live in? Jeez, oh god. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading this issue, like I was a little, like a little shocked that they just kept hitting the point over and over. It's like after Spidey leaves the prison, I'm like, okay, so that was the end of our, you know, our, our prison reform story. And then he goes on the tonight show and he's like, I'm, I still have some things to say about prison reform. (laughs) And it's like, okay, wow. All right. Yeah. Um, I took some out with what I just recounted, like just a a little bit, but um, you know, there were already, uh, I'd looked this up too. There were like some, already some movies about prison riots that were, there's one in January 15th, 1969. You might like that date, Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the it's it was like, about a riot in a prison in Arizona, uh, staged to cover an escape attempt. So I was like, "Whoa!" Eh, that was a couple of years before. Then they mm-hmm. had the this, mm. these events, and then now they're trying to do the whole very special messages in in the comics. So this one gets mm-hmm. pulled out of Stan's file. You know. Yep. Mm. I did uh I did appreciate that the the guy who's using all the other prisoners as patsies is a middle-aged white guy um and the ones who 
basically figure it out and seem to feel the most betrayed are all black convicts. Um, yeah. Like, I just thought that was, it was a, a decent thing to throw in there. Um, yeah. yeah, it would have been worse had it been someone else. Like, mm-hmm. there shouldn't have, that shouldn't have been a plot point. But if right, we were right. going to have Given it, that it is, yeah. At least do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I believe that's exactly the plot point that is in that movie from 1969 called Riot. <laughs> So oh, is it? I think Ooh. I'm not sure if Gene Hackman yeah. is the the white instigator. I know Jim Brown is in it. I just looked a little bit at it, um, and I don't recall seeing it. But mm. uh, it's a very it's a very exploitative movie. I'm sure. Mm. I like that you are keeping uh, our tradition of barely researching alive. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I will barely research almost anything. Sometimes it's, I mean that's really yeah. The day where the day where we start giving people more than that is the day where the demands just become unmanageable. If or the day, day we have so many Patreon subscribers that I quit my day job. Right, uh, right. Just watch prison exploitation movies all day long. Hooray. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well yeah. that I think covers Amazing Spider-Man number ninety-nine pretty well, and I think we should take a break. Oh, and, and one last thought. Peter and Gwen absolutely get together that night right like yeah it it was nice to see the happily ever after start now yeah 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 yeah. that's a good point it is also a reminder for me though as someone who like really really likes mary jane watson that i'm like god gwen is so boring wow i feel (laughs) terrible saying that because like one of my favorite things that i heard on your show ever was like mike alred talking about how heartbroken he was when they fridged gwen like that moves me so much but i'm also just like yeah but i prefer mary jane (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah gwen stacy had cool hair but she did not have much else no well i mean she's She's the good girl, you know, and mm-hmm. she's not the fun girl. Um, nope. And that's, <laughs> I don't, I don't that's, even know if you could go as far as to call her good. I mean, she's pretty cardboard. Like, there's not a lot of. Oh, like, you're saying there's not much there. But, yeah, she, but in the yeah. dynamic of her versus Mary Jane, it was like a good. They were they set it up as like a girl, girl, bad girl thing. They t- oh, I, I wrote a little oh. bit about this a million years ago when they first cast Zendaya as MJ or whatever in the on the Spider-Man franchise, but basically like, they, like they were created it with saying like, obviously Spider-Man's going to end up with Gwen. And it's like, actually Gwen is stiff and nobody really cares about her. And actually people like this fun girl who like right. has her own agenda and, mm-hmm. and, and personality life. Yeah. yeah. Like amazing. Yeah. And like, it's kind of, it's kind of like, if it, it still feels kind of radical to like give, say the superhero's girlfriend is like, is going to be the party girl and not, mm-hmm. and not, and, and that's like who he's going to be married to. Yeah. And that's that's cool. Like, yeah, it's just yeah. so cool. Until the devil undoes it. Fuck right. the devil, man! <laughs> that was a stupid plot point. Everyone is worse for that having had happened. Like, yep. just uh, like if, if you want to tell a story about single Spider-Man, that's great. We have Miles. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, yep. Anyway, I like that. I I like that. At least we've entered the decade of inventing the new, younger version of a of a hero, so that you can have those stories and still let a slightly more matured character exist without having to have the devil undo their marriage or you know all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. It turns out you can tell two different types of stories. When yeah, you do I, stuff like and that. I, and everyone what? benefits. 
yeah, yeah. shocking give me you, the give me the miles and the iron heart and you know all, yeah. any new view on these characters please yeah 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 and give me my middle-aged superheroes because representation <laughs> matters and i need to see yeah. myself <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. it's interesting old people are interesting man like let them be old though yeah you know? right like, yeah that's, yeah thinking about uh andrew garfield popping his back in that last spider-man movie um <laughs> yeah yeah for which i enjoyed a, a lot but yeah I, it was made for you know just enjoying that was yes it. all right okay uh, now we can take a break that right? that's a, I mean, that's a good button to go out on excellent all right uh yeah stay tuned um we're gonna be right back with yet more of the marvel comics of may 1971 right here on marvel by the month <laughs> All right, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we're going to talk about Incredible Hulk number 142. They shoot hulks, don't they? <laughs> Written by Roy Thomas, art by Herb Trimpey, and John Severin. So uh, we're just going to start off talking about that title. I have no idea <laughs> yeah, why Roy thought <laughs> this is a good title for this story. Uh, I, so it's a, it's a reference to They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, um, which is... Uh, a 1969 film based on a novel set in the depression about a dance contest. Uh, and there's a $1,500 prize. Um, over the course of the story, contestants are literally maiming themselves dancing to try to win the prize money. It's like an endurance contest. Like, mm, you know, last this isn't a dancing. footloose thing. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and so like, as the contest is going on, our, our, our protagonists realize that it's a scam. Um, they have no hope of winning any meaningful amount of money. They're trapped in totally desperate circumstances with no chance of escape. One of them helps the other commit suicide. Uh, and when Whoa. they're questioned by the cops afterward, they reply, they shoot horses, don't they? Mm. Um, mm. So I have no idea what any of that has to do with basically what is like a drawing room farce with the Hulk as a supporting character. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So... I don't know. Um, it also uh, features the second Marvel Comics appearance of uh, 13-year-old Alana's favorite writer, new journalist Tom Wolfe. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah. So Wolfe, the first time he showed up, uh, if you remember, uh, Wolfe had mentioned Doctor Strange in his book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, um, which was his book about touring the country with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters as they were evangelizing LSD. Um, so uh, Roy, Roy Thomas decided he would return the favor, basically, by inserting Wolf as an old friend of Stephen Strange into Doctor Strange number 180. Uh, fortunately for Marvel, uh, Wolf was delighted by this and not litigious about this. <laughs> um it's it's good that he didn't try that trick with Harlan Ellison. I don't think it would have worked. As well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, and Wolf, he, apparently, he was so tickled that he allowed Roy to use his likeness for this issue, um, which is sort of a pastiche of his story, those radical sh uh, chic evenings. Um, Alana, you're the Tom Wolf expert here. Um, do you want to oh, hey. kind of give us the broad uh, strokes of uh, of those radical chic evenings? Yes, uh, speaking. Again, I did not finish rereading the story before we did this because it's actually long, but as someone sure. who was familiar with it. Um, so 
he sort of contends that there is a new craze where wealthy people are hosting charity um, fundraiser parties for radical causes uh, to be chic. Um, this is not a new thing, Tom. This has been happening forever. Um, uh, he also views it in it, it is also a thing that I think is sort of complicated, but he views it very completely cynically. Um, and the case, the, the, the story that he's framing it around is Leonard Bernstein uh, and his wife who are hosting the, some members of the Black Panther Party at a fundraiser party at their house. Um, the, the way he talks about the Black Panthers, I think, is really fucked up. <laughs> but, um, you know, but like there's definitely a phenomenon that and it continues of like people trying to people with money using radical causes to make themselves look cool uh, by the same token, people with money should give their money to radical causes. So, like, <laughs> how do you do this in a way where you're not tokenizing people, you're not dehumanizing people, you're not turning it and you're, you're not turning people and stuff into a circus. Like, this is a complicated thing that is not easy to do right. Um, so. Uh, it was so it, it's really interesting, like to I I think I think Tom Wolf, as he's written in Doctor Strange, feels and sounds more like Tom Wolf to me than this one in here does. But this comic is clearly like straight out of an essay that Tom wrote. Mm -hmm. The problem is that Hulk is not a black person and Hulk <laughs> is not real. And Wait, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm, I'm sorry. You just go I, easy. I go easy. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, Hulk is not a, is like, I I think there's something interesting in treating Hulk as a hot potential cause celebre that some people will try to ally themselves around. But the problem is when you're doing this as a direct parallel to the specific article about the Black Panthers mm. specifically being hosted at Bernstein's house, then you are kind of making Hulk black people. And yeah. the way Tom wrote, uh, wrote, he always writes about black radicals as being basically scamming people. Like he fully just acts like anyone of black radicals actually just doing this to put one over on white liberals to get their money. Like that is a common theme in what he writes. Think of Bonfire of the Vanities, for example, looking at a piece of fiction from later that I mean, people might be familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. And so... You know, Hulk in here is, uh, he doesn't understand what's going on. And it's, she sort of, you know, I, I don't want to, I have, I have so many thoughts about this. I don't want to, but that's my general <laughs> response to the premise and the, yeah. and, and the challenge of the premise as it were. But um, the phenomena that they are describing though, of outland, of seemingly like causes that you would not imagine socialites hosting parties for, like being a thing in the social circuit, like what is a real phenomenon, although mm -hmm. not unique to that time period and not a brand new one in that, at that moment. Sure. Yeah. Do you, do, do any of you watch Atlanta? No. Oh, there was an episode, uh, there was like a, like a Juneteenth party by nice. awful white people. And it was just, Oh my gosh, it's so cringy. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I'm not surprised if they did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Story. Right. That, right. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 so the whole point of Hulk being used as a stand-in for Black Panthers in here is just th that is an element that because this is like if if you're not familiar with the source material, this is a really it's a fun and funny logistics very light of 
you know, it's a farce, you know, like it's just like, look at these goofy people doing goofy things. Um, but that does add like, and and this is a thing that we've kind of seen again and again with Roy Thomas, where he just doesn't quite, I, I, I don't, I don't take the position that he knows what he's doing and he's like slipping in some really awful things. Mm. I, I tend to take the position that I don't think he really understands the point that he's making right? when he's trying right. to goof on some stuff. Like he wants to be taken seriously as a writer. Like he, he, he wants to, you know, he, he was a, a former English teacher. He, he wants Harlan Ellison to like him. He wants Tom Wolfe to like him. He wants, and he name drops like half a dozen other authors in here. He wants to let you know, it's like, I know <laughs> writing and I know good writers yeah. and, yeah. and th- these are my people. It, it's like, and the only tool he's got to connect with them is a Hulk comic. <laughs> big green, <laughs> yeah. big green smashy monster. Yeah. yeah right, he's just going right. to put in as many references as he possibly can, even if they make no sense. Mm. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, okay, let's, let's jump in and, and go through here. So, uh, so, so in our story, uh, the part of the, uh, Bernstein's is played by Reginald and Militia Parrington. Militia is, Militia. <laughs> I love that name so much. I think Roy uh, did, if he just stopped there, man. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yes. Yeah. Militia. Uh, so they, they, they hit on the idea of throwing a benefit party for the Hulk, uh, after the Jade Giant makes headlines by climbing up the Statue of Liberty and falling asleep in the crook of her tablet, which is just such a sweet little image. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, There's even, like, I think an explicit reference to him being a huddled mass yearning to breathe free. (laughs) (laughs) Yearning to break everything is more right. right, right, Yeah. Yeah. Well, freedom means different things to different people. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Rob. Sorry. (laughs) So so their daughter, Samantha, is upset that they're not hosting the party to benefit her women's lib group. Uh, But as Reggie explains, that's already been done by one of their friends. So they need to find a new angle. Uh, So the Parringtons... Uh, head to uh, Bedloe's Island with the plan to promise the Hulk a chance to have his own land out west where no one will bother him. Um, they overcome the one security guard uh, who Samantha Judo tosses into the bay, uh, <laughs> and they ascend the statue while General Ross and Major Talbot hover near the Hulk in a helicopter, um, which again has this like Doctor Strange love kind of like funny incompetency to it. Oh, that they that they can't get to the Hulk, but these like just civilian people just sauntered right in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, Samantha manages to earn the Hulk's trust and talk him into coming home with them. Uh, once they get uh, home, uh, Reggie talks to the journalists who are already surrounding their brownstone. He takes all the credit for persuading the Hulk to join them. Samantha realizes that he doesn't really care about the Hulk, just the publicity. Um, and she contemplates sabotaging the whole thing because basically she has the power to keep Hulk calm or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real King uh, Kong kind of situation. Yeah, very much so. Um, she doesn't want to endanger the city, though, by setting the Hulk off. So uh, so she just takes off in a huff. Um, and now the party begins. <laughs> uh, the Hulk is mixing and mingling with the upper crust of society. Oh, oh, did you did you think those... Those dresses scream Star Trek, like classic Star Trek, right? Like the blue, the blue look like Nurse Chapel's outfit oh, and wow. the red looks like, I, I just, yeah, I, I thought that was super Star Trek. <laughs> it didn't jump out to me, but like, yeah, I mean, I totally see it. Now I can't see anything else. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so, we, you know, we, we've got folks, you know, mingling around the Hulk. 
uh, Tom Wolf is there in his his trademark white suit. Um, there's some you know good lines at the expense of the attendees. Yeah. Um, but then uh, the the whole thing uh, is interrupted by a women's lib protest outside, led by Samantha. Can we talk about the women's lib protest outside? Because I uh, actually absolutely. think this is one of the more politically messed up things in the comic. So, look, I don't read a ton of Hulk comics. Maybe there's something that I missed. But <laughs> I don't believe that Hulk has done anything particularly sexist. I would say and exactly he, the opposite. Yeah, he exactly. seems to only like women. Like, yeah. And, and, like, <laughs> well, I mean, that could be sexist and patronizing. But yeah, like he doesn't <laughs> like women are lower than Hulk. So here's right. the deal. So be, consistently we have in this, everyone from Samantha Parrington is all saying like Hulk is a chauvinist. Hulk doesn't do anything chauvinist. So what are we to take from this? That perhaps men should be in fear of women and feminists irrationally accusing them of being chauvinists just because they're emotional. Because remember, the reader is supposed to identify with the Hulk, right? The reader is the Hulk. The reader is misunderstood. He is isolated. You know, he is moody because he's a teenager. And the Hulk is being is being unfairly accused of being sexist. Yeah. And the Hulk is being unfairly accused of being sexist. <laughs> yeah. But you, my friend, you mm. as a human who's operating in the real world are probably doing some things that are sexist. That's the nature of how we're raised in society. And if you run around assuming that anytime somebody tells you you're being sexist, they're just demonizing you unfairly, then you're wrong, probably. Yeah. Um, and so it's really setting this up, this thing where like women are full of it and women feminists are out to get you they're out to get you they think you're chauvinist no matter what you've done mm -hmm. and that not not just that uh they're out to get you but like if you if you cross like they will specifically use this as a weapon against you like, yeah. yeah yeah like because samantha she, like she she knows what the hulk's deal is um but she rallies her crowd to yeah there's a sign there uh that says uh sexist hulk must go like that's yeah. one of the signs in the crowd. And mm -hmm. it's like, so it really does like it, you get the sense that she knows she's being disingenuous and she's doing this to get back mm -hmm. at her parents, you know, which of course is the only reason that feminists are doing anything is to get back at her parents. Right, right. right. My, my favorite sign how actually is the up against the suplex, the duplex wall, <laughs> which I'm like, that's this very specific reference. Yes. Up against the wall motherfuckers. And that is a duplex. Um, so that that's the one protester who's allowed to come uh, to hang out later. I think the others need to go home. Got to go. Um, but yeah, it's like in, in, in just in general, this entire protest being at that party against Hulk is just so preposterous. It just really plays into the idea that feminists are out of control and bonkers and irrational. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Keep going there because I got, I got I have, I have more some, I have more thoughts about Valkyrie later. Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh great. <laughs> so okay, so the 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 women's lib protest has shown up, um, and uh, who's who should should happen to be watching this um, in another dimension? Um, but I think the character who has absolutely become our favorite feminist uh, in the <laughs> Marvel universe, uh, the Enchantress, um, she is observing what's going on. And she decides that she's going to use Samantha Parrington as her instrument of revenge against the heroes of Earth. Uh, so she kind of directs her toward the Empire State Building, um, where there's more of an overlap between their dimensions, she says. Uh, and she casts a spell that transforms Samantha into Valkyrie, which is an identity that Enchantress took on, what, six months ago uh, in an Avengers story. Yeah. Um, 
And so, but this is the first time that, that someone else has assumed this identity. And uh, as she was used in that Avengers story, she is the proxy for feminism. Uh, and so uh, we return to the party. Um, there's a, a pretty solid full page background gag of the Hulk trying to snag some canapes from waiters who keep walking past him. <laughs> it, this is the best page of the comic. Like the cartooning, but also like, but even like the dialogue of this asshole talking in the foreground while <laughs> the rest is happening behind him is like actually funny satire. Yeah. So I, my, my award go for the best page in this definitely goes to page 14. Mm-hmm. Like, Congratulations, page 14. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Roy Thomas, you got this one. You got page yep. 14. Herb Trimpey. Yeah. I, I, I feel and, bad because yeah, I know Herb. Yeah. I, know, I know Herb is not like anybody's favorite dude, but like I kept looking at these Statue of Liberty pictures and being like, it would be so much better if Kirby did it. Which, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, all of these Statue of Liberty pictures could be so fucking good. And they're just, yeah, yeah. but no. Well, this is like, to me, my favorite with, with John Severin doing inks over Trimpy, like uh, my favorite mm. version of Trimpy, not my favorite oh, okay. of all time, no, uh, I, not, yeah, yeah. not over Kirby, but, uh, cause no. <laughs> I, I've, I've warmed up slowly. I think I'm the, I've been the coolest as far as Trimpy is concerned, but <laughs> I'm getting there. But I have to give him credit for doing the humor really well on that page. I, it's just not a thing I associated with him before. And, you know, I, now I might be like, well, you're not going to do these like really amazing visuals the way Kirby was, but at least you can do this really good gag page, which is great skill in and of, in and of itself. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, good job. Trimpy does a uh, panel to panel continuity really well. I feel like, I think, I think that's one of his strengths. I mean, there's something uh, on page 15 that illustrates that. So like, uh, we have we have uh, Reginald Parrington presenting Hulk with over a hundred thousand dollars that they raised for him during uh, this party, um, and and he gives it to the Hulk. Uh, the Hulk doesn't understand because uh, he was promised that he would get a place to go where no one would bother him, and this is just money and paper. Um, and he just lets it fall to the ground. Um, so it just goes to show that you know the Hulk is is the last pure person left on Earth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, so Hulk is like, no, but seriously, where's my new home? Um, he starts getting agitated and then Valkyrie busts through the window um, and they start brawling. Uh, well, Tom Wolf steps into the foreground and breaks the fourth wall with a cutting aside directly to the <laughs> reader. Um, so, OK. Um, uh, so let's see. Uh, Hulk. Knocks Valkyrie out of the building. He goes to leave, uh, but she's all like, hey, buddy, my bad. Let's part his friends. Uh, and, of course, he falls for it because the Hulk is just a sucker for the ladies. Um, he basically, uh, he, he, he is instantly diffused by them. Um, and so uh, Valkyrie nerve pinches him, knocks him out, and drags him up the Empire State Building. Uh, and then at the Enchantress's command, she hurls Hulk off of it to what she thinks will be his death. Um, but the part of her that is still mm-hmm. Samantha is horrified and, and follows Hulk down to make sure she didn't kill him. Uh, and she shouldn't have worried. As Hulk says, nothing can harm Hulk, least of all the hand of a woman. So oh. yikes. Oh, Hulk, you were doing so good there, buddy. Um, uh, and, and suddenly there's a burst of magic energy as the Enchantress tries to preserve her command over Samantha and fails. Uh, when it fades, uh, Valkyrie is Samantha again. Hulk has reverted to Bruce Banner. They part ways confused, but with a tease that maybe Samantha will become Valkyrie again someday. And she will. She totally will. It's so bad because like she, she beats him by tricking him. 
Yes. Like the mm-hmm. only right. way she beats him is by tricking him. It's like really scummy. Like we don't, we, there's nothing heroic about her at all. It's sort of amazing that, you know, basically what lived on is people were like, that's a fucking hot bathing suit costume thing. Very Jean-Paul Gaultier. Mm-hmm. She's got a strong look. It's got, she's got, it's got a great, really good superhero name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm glad we have Valkyrie because today we have like really awesome characters called Valkyrie and Marvel, but um, yep, right. nothing in this is like really says hero. No, and she's, any legitimacy she's like butt, butt and crotch first for most of the panel she's in. Mm. Oh yeah, that's true. And yeah. like, but and it's but and it's it's just like the ending of the comic is not even a good ending mm. either. Well, it's like because Samantha Samantha is the moral center of this person now. Like, but that doesn't that's not really congruent with anything that we'd seen earlier. Like, she's not a particularly good person. I mean, you know, so if she was just a feminist activist and then didn't protest the Hulk for no particular reason, then I'd be like, yeah, that's a good person to have it be. But it's like, no, you're not. This is not cool. I think like at the end also just the way uh, Enchantress's power just kind of abruptly dissipates is very it's very it's very anticlimactic. It Um, it feels very much like we are halfway through page 20. Let's wrap it up. mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, one thing she does do that I like earlier is when she first connects with the Hulk, She's trying to connect with him about his right to privacy and his right to freedom. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she's like, you do, you don't, you, this, you deserve to be able to have privacy. You deserve to not be bothered all the time. And it seems like she's really making an honest attempt to connect with him in that moment. Yeah. Also, and one like, that I think connects to feminism as well. Right. Like we, we should be able to have a right to privacy and a right to freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. Almost accidentally hitting a point. Roy yes. <laughs> right right oops <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i liked the uh on that last page like you get uh for the hot-blooded valkyrie and then you get the word slipping and final groping attempts and shall we say unexpected side effects and then the two of them are like side by side and he's shirtless and they look exhausted it's like there there's your there's your doing it metaphor yeah mm. good, good point that's a good <laughs> yep. point yeah, I mean, so far we haven't seen Valkyrie being used as anything other than, like, almost like a comedic stand-in for mm. feminism. Um, sometimes not even like I, this one. At least I, I get the feeling that Roy was trying to be like lighter about it than he was. The 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 Avengers story felt a little bit like he really had an axe to grind. Mm-hmm. Um, this one it feels like he's like. <laughs> I'm not even mad, bro. Uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but still it's like, yeah, there's some bits in there where it kind of pokes through. It's like, no, you're like, this really sticks in your craw um, is the feeling I got from it. But well, there we go. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's incredible Hulk number 142. Um, let's go ahead and, and take a break uh, and we'll be back to wrap up the Marvel Comics of May 1971, right here on Marvel by the Month. Uh, Well, hey, that's our Marvel Comics of May 1971. The last thing that we do on the podcast uh, is our Astonishing Takes, uh, where we recommend uh, things that we think our listeners might want to check out that are not the Marvel Comics of May 1971. 
Um, I will go ahead and kick us off. Uh, I'm going to uh, recommend the Dead Man Omnibus, which I just mm. finished reading. Um, it's it's a little off brand, um, but yeah, uh, it's a 900 page collection of what I think is basically every significant appearance of DC Comics Dead Man from his debut in Strange Adventures 205 up through uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, it starts out with Neil Adams. It ends with Jim Aparo and uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Um, so you can't ask for much better than that. Um, it's an extremely comprehensive volume. So that means, you know, there's going to be some saggy stuff in the middle um, for the sake of completeness. Um, and there is kind of this tendency, I think, with any character that's around long enough where like the longer he's around, the more convoluted his backstory gets. Um, and he it becomes less interesting as it gets more convoluted. Um, but like, honest to God, the, the concept for the dead man character is just so brilliant that like when the writers just get out of their own way and tell a story about a ghost hopping from body to body in search of justice, like it's almost impossible to do this poorly. Hmm. Um, and he also has this like great unlikely friendship with Batman um, that runs through like basically the whole run of the character, um, which is just really funny. Um, and I just love it so much. Yeah. So. I think Batman, it, it like helps Batman when his like street cred, when he's like, I'm Batman, I have a friend named dead man. So, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. We're, right. We're dark. That's a real yeah. peanut butter and jelly situation. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and sometimes you do get your dead man in your Batman, and it's amazing. So I would read that. I would definitely read that. It, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, Rob, what do you have to recommend? Uh, I read an enormous volume of the comic named Low by Rick Remender and Greg mm. Tocchini with um, some stunning color work over the already stunning uh, Tocchini art by Dave McKaig. Um, it is this is an oversized hardcover collection put out in 2021 by image comics and remenders giant generator publishing. Um, it's so beautiful and heavy, but I I keep buying all these library editions and then being sad when I, my wrist goes, but, um, the story (laughs) revolves uh, around a, a family living deep in the ocean in the far future of earth. The sun has increased in size. So it's very science fiction. Hmm. Um, it, the sun has increased in size enough that the radiation doesn't allow for humans to live on the surface. So they've been in domed cities underwater for millennia. Uh, they've found a way to, you know, generate air and things like that. Mm. But the real story is about uh, just hopeless odds and hope in general. So it's about pessimism versus optimism and and it, I, I think reading the foreword is a result of Rick Remender going through um, therapy for the first time in his life huh. and realize, and it, but it doesn't make this a happy romp. I mean, it's maybe darker than fear agent in some cases and it is, but it is beautiful to look at the story is Brian and I talked about it so hard to keep going because you, you get attached to anything and it dies um, or it appears to die. It's just like the story is hard to keep moving through because of characters that you're really interested in and then really terrible things happening. Um, but that's sort of the point of it's, it's almost like a Don Quixote thing of just optimism in the face of everything. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, I needed that 
right now. I needed mm-hmm. something like that. And I'm just starting in on volume two right away because it ends in it ends in a very dark place too. It's just like the Empire Strikes Back all the time. Um Ooh. so uh <laughs> You know, you it's you got to find these little moments of hope and know that they might be crushed and somehow it's going to keep going forward. And it's uh, so it was it's it's both something I needed right now. And it's just so beautiful to look at. That's the main thing. The art is breathtaking. Whoa, fantastic. Jamie, what do you got? I got a weird one. Uh, I was uh, arranging my trade paperbacks and I noticed that one had gotten pushed behind, you know, sometimes when they're squeezed in, uh, like one will just like kind of slip behind the rest. So I, I hadn't seen it on my shelf in a while. Uh, so it kind of popped out at me. And this is uh, X-Men Prelude to uh, Schism. Schism. Oh. Um, issues. Uh, it's only four issues. It's real short. I, I didn't love the actual storyline of this. Uh, and I also didn't realize it was written by Jason Aaron. That was kind of before I knew who he was. But I would go to the mat for this prelude. I think it's mint. It's, uh, like I said, it's only four issues. It's like perspective flashbacks from at the time, the main characters or like you get an Xavier flashback. You had a Magneto flashback, a Wolverine and a Cyclops. And this is the end of the utopia era. Uh, so it's the tail end of the fraction stuff. Uh, and it's kind of how that situation starts to fall apart and all these relationships split and the X-Men go two different ways. Uh, but that's not why it's good it's good it has this like huddled um almost like canterbury tales feeling to it that there's this like huge problem on the horizon and the x-men are all kind of huddled waiting for cyclops to like make the decision because he kind of um is representing everyone at that time um and it's it just feels very intimate and kind of quiet and flashbacky and it it's just some it's just great x-men stuff it really it has a gravity to it that i really liked sounds like one of the cyclopses moses kind of deals but yeah that's cool. yeah yeah absolutely and like the everything's really poignant and touching and interesting and it's just uh backstories that you haven't necessarily seen before nice yeah yeah i like i said i i, I would take or leave the main event but the prelude is, is should not be missed cool i like that ilana <laughs> how about you well, I believe last time I was on, I gave a plug out for Alex DeCampi's series on um, Pictures on Panel Syndicate uh, with um, Ryan Howie and D. Cunoff called Bad Karma. And I'm back to say, guess what's out? Well, it's out tomorrow, but by the time you're reading this, it'll have been out for however much time, is going to be a part two of one of her other really amazing series is also on Panel Syndicate. Remember, Panel Syndicate, you can just like read comics on your computer and it's pay what you want. Um but uh, this news, but this series is part two of her spy Cold War spy thriller May Day. Uh, you can catch up on part one, blurb of which is 1970, April 1971. The Cold War gets hot as Soviet agents and CIA operatives descend on the sunny California on the trail of a missing KGB general and the documents he defected with. And this is total scumbag loser KGB spies and total corrupt, dirty U.S. CIA agents and like. Everybody is disgusting and the art is beautiful because Tony Parker just does really elegant, very Euro style pencils on this. Um, And the new story is called The Brandenburg School for Boys. And I think with a name like that in the title, (laughs) I think if you're interested in Cold War spy thrillers, your answer is like, sign me up. But it is definitely, it's like, it's a very fresh take on this completely kind of stayed genre and and, and they just do great comic storytelling together. So that's on Panels Syndicate. Outstanding. 
Well, thank you so much for coming back and hanging out with us uh, and talking about yet more weird old Marvel comics. <laughs> Anytime. This is definitely my idea of a good time. I really do enjoy listening to the show. You guys have such great guests. I'm a little bit awestruck that I'm among such amazing luminaries. You're, the you're repeat world, now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're you're. Um, you're part of the crew. Um, where, where can we uh, steer people toward? Where can people find you on the internet? What should they be checking out that you are uh, up to these days? Well, I have my podcast, which you've been on, called Graphic Policy Radio at the intersection of comics and politics. Um, it's so good. It's so good. It is so good. Thank you. It is the only podcast that I listen to that I don't listen to weekly. Because I need to give it time and I need to think and I need to focus. Everything else I devour at double speed immediately mm. when it comes out. And yours I like savor. I listen to it at only one and a half speed. And <laughs> it, and I like I it's so rare that I listen to one that I don't like annoyingly send it to one of my friends or someone in my family. Like it, almost every single time. Oh my God, that's so kind. Thank you it's so great. much. It's seriously, yeah, I highly recommend it to everyone. It's super good. I do not want to hear my voice at double speed. I think that would just destroy <laughs> my self image. Um, so I, I, but thank you. I, that, that praise really makes me very happy. And so yeah, listeners will be having the round table on the life of Neil Adams. I know we're going to be having one about George Perez coming up in the near future as well, mm. but my usual beat is interviewing comics artists and writers about their work. And we also host some round table conversations about comics adjacent media and things like that. Periodically, I do things like get drunk on power and do an episode about our flag means death, which is totally off format, but I had to. That was great. Um, Thank you. Uh, My other show that is housed within Graphic Policy Radio is Deep Space Dive, where we go on a deep dive of Deep Space Nine Star Trek show with a variety of cultural, historical, social worker experts and such. And then I'm on Twitter. A little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A <laughs> underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And that's really the best place to get a hold of me. So thank you guys again. Thank you. Well, thank yeah. you. Um, and after you have gone and checked all of that stuff out uh, and subscribed to uh, Ilana's podcasts, uh, you followed her on Twitter. Um, you have read all the good stuff that she is sharing there. Um, why don't you uh, then turn your web browser toward uh, patreon.com slash Marvel by the month. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon there. It's just like, it's like less than a dollar a week uh, and you get a ton of exclusive content. Um, you could also then, uh, were you so inclined, uh, review us on Apple podcasts or whatever you use to listen to us. And if you'd like some free stuff in the mail, send us a screenshot of your five-star review to Marvel by the month at gmail.com. MarvelbytheMonth.com has links to our other social channels as well as our shop where Rob keeps putting t-shirts up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all brilliant. Um, and that's, man, I've been talking forever. Uh, <laughs> that's all I have to say uh, for this episode. Uh, my name is Brian Stratton. I'm Rob Bill. I'm Jamie Wenger. So we'll see you next week for next month. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Read comics.